0: Hello, friends from everywhere. I am Brittany Longsdorf, Bates Multifaith Chaplain, and it is my joy to warmly welcome you to a special episode of the Bates Multifaith Chaplaincy Buen Camino Podcast. Buen Camino is Spanish for good way or good journey. And one way that we live out a good journey here at Bates College is by spending the annual MLK Day holiday, engaging in a day full of deep learning and workshops on social justice topics, listening attentively to thought-provoking keynote speakers and embracing soul-centering spiritual practices that orient us to the necessary and urgent work of justice in our world. In this special episode, we will explore this year's MLK Day theme, Confronting our history, justice for coming times. By listening to an archival recording from a powerful voice in both Bates College history and also the evolution of progressive spirituality, Reverend Peter
1: Gomes. Hello, I'm Raymond Clothier. I'm the Associate Multifaith Chaplain at Bates College. What a joy and honor it is to invite you to spend some time with Peter Gomes. As you listen, you will notice in his voice a distinct New England accent. He learned this charming manner of speech in Plymouth, Massachusetts, where he was born and raised. His father immigrated to Plymouth from Cape Verde to work the Cranberry bogs. His mother was raised in Boston's Black upper-middle class and graduated from the New England Conservatory of Music. She was organist and choir director at First Baptist Church of Plymouth, where Reverend Gomes was raised and where he was a lifelong member. He acquired a deep appreciation for music at her side and later worked as a choir director himself. To our great fortune, he attended Bates College and graduated in 1965. He has been described as impossible to miss during his time at Bates and his classmates cherished him throughout his life. After Bates, he earned a degree at Harvard Divinity School and left Boston for a few years to teach at the Tuskegee Institute and direct the choir at a nearby church. He was ordained a minister by the American Baptist Church and returned to Harvard in 1970 to begin his service at the Memorial Church. He served Harvard for 42 years as the Pussy Minister of Memorial Church and 38 years as a plumber professor of Christian morals. Reverend Gomes was a world-renowned preacher who delighted audiences with his intellect, style, and dry wit. As a master of his craft, he did not hesitate to stir discomfort by preaching what he called the scandalous gospel, because its power to transform is too often domesticated. He took pleasure in confounding expectations by joining conflicting identities, and he wore each one with contrarian flair. As described by his dear friend and fellow Harvard professor, Henry Louis Gates, Jr., Gomes was a large, warm, and mischievous soul who contained a multitude of identities, each worn with a certain roguish sense of irony. Those identities included Black, Baptist, Republican, and a member of the Genteel Pilgrim Society, In 1991, at a protest, he publicly disclosed another. He came out as gay. The protest was over the homophobic content of a campus magazine, and he felt compelled to make a stand. It is this identity that fueled his activism in the later years of his life. As he told the Washington Post shortly after the protest, I now have an unambiguous vocation, a mission, to address the religious causes and roots of homophobia i will devote the rest of my life to addressing the religious case against gays the book he discusses in this talk the good book was part of that effort to rescue the bible from obscurity on the back shelves of the literati and misuse in the hands of fundamentalists he regarded religious fundamentalism as dangerous because of its intolerance and reliance upon political power to, in his words, destroy what it cannot convert. Thank you for spending some time with us recalling and pondering the contributions of a man who defied stereotypes with such grace, pizzazz, wit, and power.
2: the honor that is paid to the book, I deplore the fact that the only attention paid to the book is either by fundamentalists who tend to venerate uh, through their textual literalism uh, every inconceivable inconsistency uh, in the Bible, or it is left to the, the dry surgeons and pathologists of the divinity school who are only interested uh, in syntax and pottery. Somewhere... <laughs> somewhere between these two dismal extremes must be what the prayer book calls the true and lively word. And it's that true and lively word to which I tried to speak in that uh, front bit. Now friends uh, tell me, uh, I think they are flattering me, they say, I've been working on your book. (laughs) And... uh, And I say, good for you, good for you. I said, we priced it very high so that you would not want to waste your investment and that you would read every word of it. But I know when they say that, they they are in the front part there and they're having to deal uh, with with some of the destabilizing realities and truths about the construction of scripture, a phrase that I uh, use over and over again. But it is necessary to know this And most Christians did know this uh, until a relatively short period of time uh, ago uh, when um, uh, our notions of what was appropriate and inappropriate to discuss about the Bible uh, began uh, to change and shift, I think, not for the better, but for the worse. So the first part of the book is what is it? How do we know what it is? Uh, How is it put together? What do we do with it? The second part, the uh, middle section of the book, uh, is a series of sort of case studies uh, which uh, tries to demonstrate uh, several things at once, and I confess that this is sometimes a complicated process, uh, but uh, not an impossible one and a necessary one. I wanted to prove that while the, the words of Scripture do not change, our capacity to understand and interpret them does change, and has changed, and has changed vividly in instances in which every one of us can um, uh, identify. We have not thrown out the Bible, but we have begun to read it through different sets of lenses than we might have before, which is a principle which tries to illustrate the fact of what I call the perspicacity of Scripture, or the liveliness of Scripture, or Scripture's capacity to enter into the world in which the reader is and both transform and be transformed at the same time. That is the vitality of Scripture. And sometimes the tale is told uh, with, a, with a positive upswing and sometimes uh, it's a rather questionable one. I began with what I thought would be the relatively mild case uh, of uh, uh, the Bible and drink. Now, There was a great tradition in this country, of which this college uh, was a part, which understood that the Christian way uh, was the way of total abstinence as far as alcohol was concerned. Now, uh, it would be helpful if the Bible, the moral sanction of our age, would reinforce that a priori Christian conviction. Uh, And if it didn't, we'd help twist it around so that it would. But the conviction was there and the Bible was here. And what I try to demonstrate there is that the Bible, uh, shall we say, has a variety of views about drink. The Bible was much more uh, creative and uh, uh, I won't even say tolerant, but much more diversified about drink uh, than the Baptists of my youth uh, uh, were who based their principle uh, on the Bible. Lips that touch liquor shall never touch mine and so on and so forth. I have nothing against total abstinence for those who get turned on by such things. And, <laughs> and I have nothing against uh, trying to maintain among the young uh, a, a strict and, and absolute code. I mean, my generation at Bates, I think, were made creative uh, and imaginative because there were so many things against which it was possible to uh, rebel. Uh, one, might, uh, one might argue that with the slackening of all of these things, you produced a, a, a slack and wimpy generation. Uh, there's nothing to rebel against, so you just have to rebel for rebellion's sake. But in our day, we rebelled for real things. We wanted to drink, and it was forbidden by the Bates Blue Book, which presumably was supported by the Bible itself. But the Bible... Uh, has wonderful things about uh, drink in it. Uh, Wine that maketh glad uh, the the heart of man, and oil to make his face shine. And our Lord's first miracle, the thing which is the sign of who he is, is a turning of water into wine, and not grape juice, real (laughs) wine. (laughs) You Methodists and Baptists have got to understand that you only have half a miracle here. And so, how does one sort of reconcile these contradictory views with one's own a priori convictions? My take here uh, is not to try to resolve this, but to illustrate, in some sense, both the ambiguity and the vitality uh, of the issue. And I introduced here a principle uh, that I learned uh, from Roland Bainton, who was a total abstainer, a teetotaler at Yale, and a New Testament scholar. Uh, And uh, he said, what one should do is elevate biblical principle over biblical practice or precedent. That there are great and enduring biblical principles that take priority uh, over the particular things that the Bible either permits or forbids. Uh, and in the case of drink, against which he stood uh, four square, he argued, not because the Bible forbade drink, which it does not, but because the Bible regards the body as the temple of the soul. And therefore, we know that drink tends to pollute and corrupt uh, and uh, weaken uh, the moral will and the intellectual capacity. It was for that reason, that higher principle of being created in the image of God, that he was again drink, rather than because he could torture some verse into supporting him. Now, I think it's a sound principle. That is, the taking of biblical principle, where one can discern it and derive it, over the rather schoolboyish or schoolgirlish way of saying, Verse three says this, verse four says that, and therefore we have an ironclad compact here as to how we're to behave. It's not that way at all. I began with the relatively benign subject of drink because that was a way of getting into some less benign subjects um, such as uh, what the Bible has to say and Christians believe and have practiced about uh, uh, women, about the homosexuals, about the question of race uh, and the relationship between Christians and Jews. Each one of these chapters uh, attempts to do two things. It attempts uh, to uh, describe uh, the uh, multi-voices of Scripture and our interpretation of those those Scriptures and uh, the evolution of positions uh, contrary to ones which were once taken on those cases. The case of women is is vivid uh, uh, before us uh, um, within our lifetime. Uh, The whole question of the relationship, the proper role of women in the churches has been turned upside down. The church has not fallen apart and the Bible has not been scrapped, but the Bible's words on that subject have not changed one iota. So how do you explain it? What has happened is that our understanding of what the Bible says and what is appropriate and inappropriate, what principle to follow, what precedent to follow, it is that which has evolved and is changing, and if you believe Uh, in the notion that it is, in good Christian doctrine, the Holy Spirit, which animates not only institutions but texts, it is nothing less than the heavy-duty work of the Holy Spirit that has been alive and in our midst over these years, by which we begin to change the way we look at how uh, people relate to what the Bible says and what we believe uh, the Bible says about them. The instance of race, I will just instance another. When I Went to teach at Tuskegee Institute in 1968. Fresh with my Harvard degree, I uh, went down to uh, uh, Alabama. I'd never been south of Cape Cod Canal, so this was a great new experience uh, for me. Uh, And uh, my parents uh, were very worried. They said that uh, uh, I had never uh, uh, been slow to speak and that um, I might find myself in a circumstance where it was best to keep quiet and that I probably wouldn't and uh, I would then probably be decorating a tree or a lamppost or something or other. Ignorance is bliss, I didn't believe them, of course not. Uh, What what did George Wallace have against me? Uh, And so uh, down I went, uh, completely unawares, and I announced to one of my new colleagues the first week that I was going to go down to the First Baptist Church in um, uh, Tuskegee, downtown, to Sunday service. And the man looked at me and he said, are you crazy? And I said, well, why not? He said, well, the ushers in the First Baptist Church of Tuskegee wear two things. They wear carnations in their lapels and guns on their hips. Uh, My advice is don't go. Well, I took bad advice and I didn't go. And the reason the deacons and the ushers of the First Baptist Church in Tuskegee had guns uh, was to keep undesirable people out of their church, namely black people. Black people had their own churches, and weren't supposed to go to white churches. This was not simply the way of the South, this was God's way sanctioned in the Bible as the result of the curse uh, upon uh, the sons of Noah. And chapter and verse would be trotted out every time. The Civil War was fought not over slavery or over states' rights, it was fought over interpretation of scripture and any Southern Baptist preacher could give you the case until 25 years ago as to why God intended the races to be separate. You cannot find a church in the South today, I would argue, except in the most uh, uh, reprobate places uh, where uh, that uh, doctrine uh, is celebrated today. And in fact, the Southern Baptist Convention just three years ago uh, asked for a public and gave a public apology Uh, for its uh, uh, unchristian reading of Scripture uh, and its uh, collaboration both in slavery uh, and in segregation. We do not regard uh, the Southern Baptist Convention uh, as on the front line of progressive reform and zeal. So even though it took them 160-odd years to come to this, the fact that they came to this is just another piece of evidence in this case that the Scriptures, which they have not thrown out, and which are the same as the ones their fathers preached from, in some cases the very ones that they preached from, the scriptures remain the same. But our reading, our understanding of it, our appreciation of it, uh, our interpretation of it changes. And that is where the true and the lively part uh, come together. It shouldn't take a college degree to figure out uh, the same uh, set of relationships uh, between uh, text and prejudice and change, that exist here, that also exist in the question of homosexuals and homosexuality and in the question of Jews and Christians. It's there to be dealt with. And what I try to do in the second section of the book is to outline that process in these five uh, case studies. The third section uh, of the book, frankly, is the one in which I was most keenly interested because that is what I do. It is the preaching section. It is the part of the book that actually has to do with having found out what it is and how it works and doesn't work. What has it got to say to me about the important things of life, the good life? How how can I be good? I regard that as still the fundamental question. People want to know how to be good. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, uh, what must I do to be saved or what one thing must I do? That is the continuing human question. And so people want to know, what does the Bible have to say to them about uh, 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 about death, for example, or about money? i got lots of reaction to my chapter on money. Uh, uh, About mystery. Uh, What does the Bible uh, have to say uh, uh, about fear? What does the Bible have to say uh, uh, about uh, uh, the basic sense of of self-worth and self-value? How do I see myself uh, in my great taskmaster's eye? I tried in a series of eight or ten chapters in that third section to try to speak to those issues, to argue that the Bible not only spoke, it does speak. And it is part of the renovation of the soul and the spirit uh, in which I believe this generation is uh, genuinely uh, engaged. I come back to that uh, uh, central claim and central ambition, uh, and acknowledge it as a result quite frankly and unabashedly uh, of the religious education and the intellectual training I received in this college, which was uh, rigorous, uh, diverse, uh, uh, in many ways parochial, and in many other ways uh, eye open and opening and wonder making uh, I learned. In Bates College, not only in the chapel but uh, in the lecture halls, that it was possible to worship God with one's mind as well as with one's lips and with one's heart. And that is a lesson I have never forgotten. The very first sermon I ever heard uh, at Bates College was the sermon given to freshmen on the first Sunday that we were here in September 1961. Dean Zerbe preached a sermon on the search for integrity, and he told us that integrity meant wholeness. Everything fitting together, mind, body, heart, spirit. I've never forgotten that, because not only did he exemplify that in his own person, but it seemed to me to correspond to all of the things I have subsequently learned and experienced. And in some small way, I wanted to be a part of spreading that larger view of things and with particular reference to the Bible uh, into a constituency uh, out in the larger world.
0: recording and think about the MLK theme of confronting our history, justice for coming times, I am struck by Reverend Peter Gomes' emphasis on the evolution of understanding. He shares brief summaries of case studies from his book about how the scriptural text on women, racism, drinking, homophobia, and more, are the same sacred words but that the real power of sacred texts, and perhaps even of the sacred, is our capacity to continually interpret, to evolve in our own understanding, to let our lived experiences embody new expressions of those same words. Gomes is saying that though it stays the same, scripture is meant to be lived, that it is truly experienced in motion, and in the context of constantly changing communities. This year's MLK Day theme holds that same holy tension between history, what was and is sometimes viewed as static, and future, what must change and transform. Confronting our history is the call to constantly look with new eyes and open hearts at the past. To name the truth about the events within our narratives, both ugly and beautiful. And to allow our current knowledge and lived experience to draw from this well of the past new revelations. We then take these new revelations and refocus our energy on justice for the coming times. We must ask ourselves, with new insights and understandings of the past, what must we do differently? Where must we act to heal injustice? How might we live out a new narrative that leads us to be more attentive, accountable, and equitable? Another beautiful way that Gomes names this holy tension is in his short line about wholeness and how it is tied to integrity. He names wholeness as an action Not a state of being that you accomplish and rest in, but a characteristic to constantly strive towards. Wholeness is not a static position. Wholeness is knowing who you are, knowing your history, and endeavoring wholeheartedly to live an integrous life into the future. Wholeness is fluid and evolving and involves actions that make for a more just world. By weaving wholeness and integrity together, Gomes shares that wholeness is not individualized. It is not simply about being whole within yourself, for integrity interacts with others. Integrity is a way of living in community. By tying wholeness and integrity, Gomes proposes that to be whole, we must co-create community that is whole. What more could we ask of justice for coming times? In this same way, MLK Day is not meant to be a singular event or a particular day of the year. MLK Day is not static, but a weekend and a time that continues to fuel the constant education, work, and reform needed for a more whole and just society. With that in mind, I want to leave you with two prompts for reflection that you can take with you outside of this day and outside of this podcast. I hope you'll find time to think about these prompts as you walk in your neighborhood or write in your journal or reflect in conversation around your dinner table. The first prompt is what social justice issue is calling your attention right now? How might your understanding of it evolve and transform? The second prompt is, What action can you do regularly to move towards wholeness? As Gomes beautifully states, at Bates, we embrace worshiping the divine with our mind, as well as our lips and our hearts. This is what MLK Day is all about. Positioning our hearts, spirits, and minds with reflection and learning in order to better care for our community, for our human family, for creation through transformative justice work. Thank you for taking this time leading up to MLK Day to center down, simmer, and reflect with us and with beloved Batesy, Reverend Peter Gomes. I wanna close with a special thanks to the Bates College Muskie Archives and Special Collections Library for helping us curate this material. To the Bates MLK Day Planning Committee for the astounding array of virtual workshops and speakers this year and to all of the Multifaith Chaplaincy staff who contributed to producing this podcast. Buen Camino, friends. May your journey be good. May your life lead you to wholeness.